This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, good. Some of you are way back there in the back. This is, I, I, I'm not trying to make you insecure by getting you to move forward, but this is a teaching class, so we'd love to have you come up and get part of this and, uh, and be part of it. And uh, good to see you here, Scott. So we're going to plunge right back into where we were yesterday. If you have your Bibles or you have it on your iPhone, you'll want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, But before uh, some of you are still moving, what we're going to endeavor to do today is we're defining the stumbling block. We're talking about church discipline. We're talking about how to prevent having to get into the four steps. And uh, we're going to get into that today. So um, at any rate, uh, you have your Bibles out and let's bow our heads. I invite you to bow your heads and we'll get started. Father in heaven, you're so good to us. I pray as we plunge into this subject today that you will be our teacher and our helper. Uh, we live in a world that this is not very popular, even in our own church. People really run from this. And yet we know that before Jesus comes, this church must be united, must be united in its commitment, in its fellowship, and to one another and to you. So we pray you'll give us wisdom now as we work through these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you remember uh, where we left off, uh, I told you yesterday that I would define what does it mean to be a stumbling block. I gave you some illustrations about how easy it is to be a stumbling block. I think I used the casino illustration. So somebody came up to me uh, afterwards, or I think maybe even in the class, and said, okay, where, I mean, if we're not careful, we, we would live our lives in a constant thing about where am I constantly being a stumbling block. Well, um, none of us are perfect. Probably we've all been a stumbling block to a certain degree. I don't want to think about that. But, but what does the Scripture do? What, what does the Scripture teach about becoming a stumbling block? Uh, that word stumbling block, um, it's an important word. So how do we understand that? Well, the Apostle Paul certainly used food offered to idols. Now, that's not a big deal for us, so it's a safe thing to use. But we'll get into some things that may not be as safe in a few minutes. Um, we don't have that problem in our culture, in our society, maybe in some parts of the world they do, but not in North America, not in the Western societies. So how do we become a stumbling block? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then I want to go to Acts 15, and we'll see some connections there. Um, Chapter 8, and we're looking at at verse, just where we left off yesterday, verse 9. I, I love the introduction, the first verse of this. I know I gave it to you yesterday, and I love the inter, New International. It says, love, uh, let's see, how does that go? Um, oh, okay, oh, there we go. Uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Don't you like that? I remember that. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Look at verse 9. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours... What is the liberty Paul is talking about? Just refresh our minds. That liberty is, I'm a Jew. I grew up not worrying about idols. They don't mean a thing to me. You can offer all the food you want to those idols, and I can eat it. It won't affect my conscience. It won't affect my walk with Jesus. It won't affect me at all. 
Uh, in fact, if you give me that idol, I'll cut it up and make some wood out of it and some firewood out of it and heat myself some food. It's got some gold on it, great. We'll melt it down and make some money out of it. Um, doesn't bo- that thing doesn't bother me at all. That's his liberty. So he can, he can eat food that's been offered to idols all day long, every day of the week, and it's not going to affect his Christianity, nor will it affect his walk with God. That's his liberty to do it. But then he says, beware, lest this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. So why does food offered to idols become a stumbling block? Well, you know the rest of the story. Gentiles have a whole different um, experience with idols, and for them to eat food offered to idols means they could be lost to Christ. Well, let's go back to Acts, but let's see why this gets to be a bigger issue. If you go back, uh, if you don't mind, to Acts chapter 15, the early church was pretty contentious. In fact, if I took you to the book of Romans, he, the apostle Paul gives a whole... Uh, another lecture on this whole thing about food. A lot of people think that he's talking about being a vegetarian. He's not talking about being a vegetarian at all. He's talking about if I have to never eat another piece of flesh food, uh, I'll be a vegetarian rather than eat a food offered to idols and become a stumbling block to my weaker brother. That was, that's the argument in Romans that's going on there. I'm not going to go to Romans. I'm going to go to chapter 15 of Acts. And... Uh, And I want to look at, well, this was circumcision, but they also had an issue over food offered to idols. And in the final, um, well, I don't have that right in front of me. What was that? 20. Verse 20, 29. Yeah, there it is. For it seemed, uh, verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. This is the actual decision out of the general conference session of the early church. They didn't have any higher authority than this. This was their council. Just like in a general conference session, it's the highest authority that we have. This is coming out of that. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to lay on you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to what? Now, this is no longer just a personal opinion. This is something that has now been laid down by the church itself. This is a collective voice of the church saying, do not eat food offered to idols. So now, if I'm Jewish, I have a decision to make. Am I right? That means then that I'm going to go through the inconvenience. Thank you very much, General Conference Session of having to find food that's not been offered to idols down at the local market. And it's going to be a hassle every week. And there would be many people in the Western world that would just rise up in anger and say, you have no right to mess around with my life that way. That doesn't bother me at all, and I can eat all the food I want to offer to idols. Why would you even say something like that? Can you hear it? The online magazines, they'd really go for it, wouldn't they? How would that policy differ from the Pharisees? Well, 
in the Pharisee rules, Jesus said to them that you err not knowing the Scripture. Um, this is, when you look at this, you'll find that the prophets of God are helping them. This is the church in session. This is not 10,000 rules that would make your life impossible. Have you ever studied what the Pharisees asked people to do? Yeah, pretty impossible. This is the world church coming together, their church coming together, our church, the early church. And they're saying, look, there are some things that we don't want you to do. And they're saying we would ask you to do this for the unity of the church. I think that's a long drive from the Pharisees who are constantly trying to make themselves acceptable to God by purification. They had 10,000 rules of purification trying to make themselves acceptable to God. And this is, this is about Christian behavior for the good of the church. All right, I have a comment right over here. Come so that, uh... Well, just, just on what he was asking, verse 28 makes it clear to me it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. So clearly they were confident that this was the Holy Spirit's um, command and not just their own. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Thank you so much for that. Uh, it was a good question as well. I mean, you remember Jesus as he's walking through the field on the Sabbath and they were hungry and they got some, you know, the story as well as I know the story. And the Pharisees just came unglued uh, with that. So it's, it's a different ballgame and, and for different motives. I, what I don't understand is, the, you know, obviously there's more than than just these, these three, why did they, was it just these were the, the only three that they were having an issue with? Yeah, those were the issues that they were considering at the moment. You could do that with about, you know, for instance, um, you can take portions of a general conference action and it will be focused on that one action, but it won't address everything else. It will not address the whole entire picture. Um, it's a point, our church manual has grown through the years as it's needed, and, and there's been adjustments as we've gone through there as well. Um, so, yeah, they, they weren't saying this is the sum total. This, these, among the issues that they were dealing with, these were the, this was the response to it. So, so when, you, uh, when you try to explain this to someone, and, uh, you know, obviously the, the heathens, they, uh, they ate pork. I mean, they did, and it wasn't addressed there. How do you explain to them when you're uh, telling them, you know, that's... That isn't just the Old Testament. And they say, well, look here, this is for Christians. How do you explain to them that this was only three issues? It wasn't the only three issues. It's a, it's a, it's a good question. Two, two responses to that. One is in the text itself. And the text itself also says talks about um, not eating blood. Verse 29, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled. So they already knew about pork, or they would have never added this one. That's my point. My point is the Christian world today ignores this totally. And yet in the early church, they said, you, you should abstain, you should eat kosher. 
which means that they are, if they're eating kosher, they already know about pork. The other thing is in Thessalonians, he says to the Gentile churches, you need to imitate the churches in Judea. So there's already a sense that, that the Jewish, the basic Jewish teachings of the Ten Commandments, of the health laws, those kinds of things are already a given. And Christ never undid those either, of course. So these, these are issues that they are... So if you're Gentile, you already know about pork. You already know about the Sabbath. You already know about the Ten Commandments. So these are some things that, they're, that they are dealing with, and they're saying, look, we, you better eat... Ko- if you're going to eat kosher, you're not going to eat pork. And so maybe they were, maybe they were eating... Uh, they weren't eating unclean foods, but they were still eating things that were strangled or things that had the blood in it and that kind of thing. And they were saying, no, we want you to eat kosher. That's a command from the New Testament church. Okay, I'm coming over here for another comment. hope this thing doesn't blow me out. Okay. They were um, quoting from Leviticus 17 and 18. And in there... Those were the laws that applied to both Jews and Gentiles. Right. And so they, were, they really weren't making up these laws. They were simply saying, since in the Old Testament uh, these applied to both Jews and Gentiles, then we think that this is something that would apply to you also. Yeah, this applied to strangers within their gates. And strangers within their gates are not going to be eating pork either. So. They'd be keeping Sabbath. All right. Good questions. Really good questions. Pastor Royce, do you have anything you want to add to any of that? All right. Let's, um, l- let's, let's go back. Okay, so we have the early church saying, do not eat food offered to idols. That's a collective thing. Now, now we've got a different thing. If now I choose as a Jew to exercise my, quote, liberty, and I choose to go out and eat food offered to idols, what am I now doing? Now I'm becoming a stumbling block. Now it's no longer personal opinion. Now the collective church has said, this is how we want you to behave. Understand the difference? So now I move from personal opinion to collective church position. And now it's time to surrender my personal opinion that it's my liberty to eat food off at idols whenever I want it, Now's the time to surrender that personal opinion. I'm not violating God's will to do that. I'm talking about His Word. Surrender my personal opinion and conform to the church as a whole. Following me? Okay. Yes. But when a person is part of the church as a whole and they, uh, once that voted action is a part of the their understanding of what it means to be a member of the church, and they violate it, it would be understood that they're sinning, correct? And that they're in a position that could be disciplined? Well, it's, I'm going to answer this. It's, it's a little bit more complicated uh, than that. Again, I'm just using the food offered to idols. I have the liberty to do that. I'm Jewish. That's, I'm not Jewish, but I, I'm, in this illustration, I'm Jewish. I can, I can have the liberty. It's not going to affect me at all. And the fact the church made the rule is still not going to affect my, if I ate it, it wouldn't affect my. But now there's a bigger issue. Because the church made that for the unity of the church and to be a witness to weaker brothers. So now I have to ask myself the question, yeah, I may have liberty. It's not a sin from that standpoint. 
but it would be a sin to hurt the unity of the church. And then the Apostle Paul is very clear, what if your weaker brother stumbles over your liberty behavior? This is, uh, in Western societies, we have a hard time because of all of our wonderful independent attitudes. And, and, and some, in that, some of that's good, but it's got to be subject to God's word. Now, just in case we don't get it and we still say, not that any of you would do that, but in, in case we would say, uh, okay, fine, the church can do what it wants to do, uh, I'm going to take whatever that GC session does with kind of a grain of salt. I'm going to continue to eat my food offered to idols. Uh, in, in case you have kind of a cavalier, free spirit approach to that, then you've got to deal with this. Revelation chapter 3. See if that'll drop right over there. Okay, there we go. And uh, if you look at chapter 3, I said 3, I actually meant 2. And I want to look at verse 20 of chapter 2. This is the church of Thyatira. Verse 18, the angel of the church in Thyatira write these things, says the Son of God. It says, who? This is pretty authoritative now. Now, this is about your relationship directly with Christ himself. These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, your patience, and your works... You feed the poor, you feed the homeless, you do wonderful things. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to what? Eat things offered to idols. Tell me when this book was written. Yeah, so it's many decades after the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. So what you have is Christ coming in behind his church and he's saying, just in case you don't understand, decades after it was done in Jerusalem, this issue of food offered idols is a big deal. Don't do it. Don't exercise your liberty. And I think the only reason Jesus did it here is because people probably were saying, oh, you know, it's not that big of a thing. Oh, come on. No. He said it. And now, so you've got to deal with that. So it, we become a stumbling block when the, the church, the, in our case, the world church comes together and lays out what they declare to be, to be Christian lifestyle and I ignore that and say, I don't have to do that because it's my liberty not to have to do it. Now, let me give you an example. You want a real-world example? Some of you will like it. Some of you won't. Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't really matter, I guess. Uh, if you look at our church manual, and I'd have to find the actual page, but you can read it for yourself without me going there. 
one of the things that it talks about is, is going to movies. Now, I didn't say that. I didn't invent that. That Michigan Conference didn't invent that. That was done by the World Church. So, if I'm, particularly if I'm a leader in God's work, and people will say to me, look, come on. I mean, get with it. There's some good movies out there. Okay, let's, let's just grant that, that there are some good movies out there. Okay, if there's some good movies, and the popcorn is better at the theater than it is at my house, why should I just be able to go to the theater and watch it? I mean, you, you guys just don't get it. Okay. I want to ask a question. Let's say that you're going to the theater to see, quote, a good movie, end quote. If you can so find one, as James White might have said, they didn't have movies in his day. They had theater, theatrical theaters. And they had novels of which all go together. And he said, you can, if you can find one good one in 500, but you've got to crawl through 500 to find the one good. Okay, that's a side trip. Let's get back to the main point. Um, so, so you say, okay, I'm going to go to the theater and I'm going to watch the good movie. So you go. But some teenager in your church finds out that you went. And he's going to use you as the excuse to go. But he's not going to discern between the good and the bad. Now, what have you become? Stumbling block. It may may not be anything wrong with looking at the good movie. Now, another reason Adventists don't... We, we talk about this just because we want you to be careful what you look at, period. I tell people, it's not whether you... You should never look at bad movies, either at a theater or in your home. I had a... Years ago, so nobody will know who it is. Probably Pastor Ross would know, but... I had become a ministerial secretary at Michigan Conference, and... Uh, one of my first things I ran into was a pastor whose members were calling up and they were really unhappy with him and there were various reasons and I went up and visited with him and I visited with members, took him visiting with me. And one of the things that I found out was that he had brought home a movie and had invited members over to his house and they were watching this movie in his house, in his basement, and it had profanity. Instead of getting up and turning it off, they just let it play. And at that moment, he lost the ability to minister to them spiritually. They didn't understand why didn't cut it off. He would have gained the respect by saying, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize this movie had this on it. We're done with that. So, uh, that's just an illustration of how you can become a stumbling block because he allowed something to carry on that the church had talked about. Now, I know this is made fun of 
uh, in a lot of places. But the question is, if the church has come to this realization, I might have some liberty that may not affect me personally in my walk with Christ, but I have to think about the unity of the church, and I have to think about my influence on others, particularly if you're, if you're leaders in God's church, it should, in, in particular for that. Now, I saw a hand back here. You got another tough question for me. I'm just smiling. All right. Well, this is a commentary, not a question this time. So, But I'm affirming kind of what you're saying, and I'm going to take it to a level beyond that. When I was working at um, Vista Hermosa Elementary School uh, for a summer, we took the kids, or I should say we, this is not an Adventist school. Okay, I'm working at a Christian but not an Adventist school. And they wanted to take all the kids to the theater. I didn't even know this was in the church manual that we're not supposed to go to the movie theater, okay? But I'm the bus driver. I made a decision that I would be willing to drive the bus, but I will not go into the theater with them. And that was made known to all of them. And, you know, I'm, I'm accompanying the kids. I'm there for their safety and protection and everything else, but I didn't go in. They're non-Adventist. They're all the kids. Uh, you know, it's... And they wondered why why would i not go in you know it was a question to them and i i had opportunity there to explain a little bit and uh you know they were they were satisfied with that but to me this is also a witnessing opportunity it's not just the negative of what if a teenager in my church finds out that i went it's what does the world think when they know i don't all right good thank you uh and that's a good point this is church standards um are not a checklist. You know, they're not there to say, hey, I've arrived. I've conformed to this. They're really to help us to grow. Well, let me give you an example of that. We don't eat pork in the Adventist church. We don't eat unclean foods. Is that where we, so we say that in our baptismal vows. You know, it says right there. Is that where we want people to stay? No. What do we want them to do? We want them to grow. Am I right? So church standards, by and large, are minimums to get me started on a growth with Christ. And, um, and, and the same would be true for jewelry. Jewelry is not the minimum. I mean, uh, the maximum. It's the minimum because he wants me to also grow in a life of simplicity. So people come to me sometimes, they say, well, listen, you know, you can drive X kind of car, but you, but you can't wear jewelry. I says, well, you, you got something mixed up here. The jewelry is just the starting place. It's supposed to be sending a message that we are committed to simplicity, and I need to grow in that in my life. But I become a stumbling block, though, when the world church has said these are areas, and I'm not willing to bring my life into conformity with those areas. So you understand now the definition of a stumbling block. Maybe I can give you a definition. Stumbling block is when I refuse to comply with something the world church has asked me to lay aside, even though I don't think it would affect my walk with Christ. Okay? That's my definition of it. Uh, and I think it's built on, built on Scripture. All right? Um, 
Any other? You, you want some other examples? I could give you some. I, you could figure out your own. I mean, you, you could just look at it and, and, and think about your own, own examples in that. All right, let's, um, let's go back to, uh, to Matthew chapter 18, and I want to talk about this whole issue. It, the redemptive discipline often is taken out of its setting, and it's dealt with, and we need to get it back into its setting so that we see it in its, in its totality and to its, into the big picture. So let's uh, skip back to Matthew chapter 18. We'll try to pick up where we left off yesterday. Um, and now let's go to verse 6 and see verse 6 doesn't make a look make more sense. But whoever causes one of these little ones, who are one of the little ones? Who's the little ones? It's really all of us, and particularly new people that are coming to the church, our young people. Even a bigger emphasis there, but it includes all of us because we all have influence on one another. Um, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That's some of the strongest language you ever hear from the lips of Jesus. Uh, Jesus ha- is passionate about making sure that we take care of the saints, the young ones, the little ones in the church. And we better be good examples. He says you need to be good examples. Verse 7, woe to the world because of offenses. In other words, he's saying, look, the world is going to make stumbling blocks. Does the world have stumbling blocks? I'm, I was down at the thing to get my, my key quit working. One of my keys quit, quit working, and they both quit working. I guess I got them too close to some magnet. But so I went down to have them renewed, and while I was down there, there was a, a young lady with somebody else, not one of our young people, but she's obviously, I think, under the influence of something. I have never heard such more foul language, and it was out loud. It, was in, it wasn't to me personally. I'm standing over here, but it was just, you know, uh, they were obviously aware that they were attracting a lot of attention. There's plenty of stumbling blocks in the world. Will there be a lot of stumbling blocks tonight? There's going to be a lot of stumbling blocks in the world. Jesus says, woe to the world for the offenses. But in so many words, he's saying, to us who are in the church, you better not become an offense. You better not become a stumbling block. Because I'm going to require that at your hand. That's why I believe as Christians, Seventh-day Adventist Christians, I know a lot of people hate that word conservative, but we should be conservative in Christian lifestyle because we don't want to be stumbling blocks. There are some things that I could do at liberty and wouldn't hurt me personally, but I don't want to be a stumbling block. Conservative in Christian lifestyle, but liberal in grace. Now that's kind of that's kind of truth and loving kindness together, um, and and grace is never a license to sin, uh, for sure. So um, anyway, back to back to back to this. Uh, it, notice verse eight. These are really radical statements by Christ. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off, cast it out. And we know he's talking proverbially here. I think I could say that. Look, if, 
if there's stuff that you're watching that is hurting your walk with Christ or causing you to be a stumbling block, cut it off. Cut off the television. Or at least put on top of your television. I tell people, look, don't ever quote me that I said you had to get rid of your television, but you can quote me here. Put on the top of your television whatsoever things are, you know the rest of it, and then anything that you watch, just make sure it's in, in cahoots with that. Okay? And, and at about 99% of the time, you won't look at much that's on there. And, and uh, you know, I, I like to know what's going on in the world. Kyle, I'll come back to you in a second. I like to know what's going on in the world. It's very, in the Internet, it's the same way. You've got to be really, really careful. Um, I found myself just spending way too much time because uh, on the news, you know, because you can go here, you can get an article here, and I know I need to keep up with things. So for several weeks, I just plain wouldn't go there just to make sure that I brought my discipline back into to focus. And it really helped. I mean, just say, Lord, okay, uh, you and I aren't, I mean, you and I aren't going to even go there, you know, for the next three weeks. You know, you, by the way, you can survive by not watching the news for three weeks. You can survive. It's, it's very possible. And, and you don't really have to know everything that's going on. And much of what is going on is their agenda that they want you to hear or see. Uh, you have to kind of understand that thing. I mean, it's very easy for me because I'm curious and I like, to, I like to know about this. And I like to, Anybody else like that in here? I like to know about And you can spend bukus of time and waste time and you're not walking with God and you're not, abiding in Christ. And I want to be abiding in Christ when I'm looking at the news. Well, I clicked in yesterday, and I shouldn't have. Uh, and that's another, I, I didn't spend a lot of time there, but immediately I was confronted with uh, a picture that I didn't want to be, that was on the news, it was part of whatever, and I'm saying, oh man. So now I have to deal with getting that off, off the scene. You have to ask yourself. You know, we can't totally insulate ourselves. I mean, you have to ride down the, the road, and you're still going to have to look at billboards. But Ellen White says we have to come to the place where we have eyes that see not and ears that hear not. We become so armored with Christ that these things are not allowed to affect us. We don't dwell on them. When they are brought to our attention, they're immediately kicked out and dismissed. We have to come to that place. So we have to be careful with uh, what we're looking at. And what, now, you had your hand up, so let me come over here, and let's see if I can get you. Well, I was just looking at the text you're referring to in Philippians 4, and it's talking about thinking on these things. And so um, I was just, I made the comment, like, your TV's going to be off a lot of the time, but because um, a lot of the programs don't fit these criteria. But um, what about having our mind stayed upon the Word of God as a filter through which we would see the things, um, as a way of interpreting, or ultimately, if, if something does come up that we don't uh, see in harmony with our, our Christian lifestyle, that we would, you know, either choose to turn it off or um, keep our minds stayed upon what's right. Yeah, no, that's very good. Um, the media today is very powerful. I mean, they have studied and perfected so that they can get you. They they're masters at getting your attention. I actually think their school. Uh, in the school of the enemy of souls, but they, they, this stuff is designed so powerful as to get your attention, and it's hard sometimes when you see something, to ta- it takes you almost a moment 
to uh, shake yourself and say, oh, okay, that's not, some, that's not where I want to go uh, kind of a thing. I mean, it's just the world that we live in. It's just very, very powerful. We have to be careful for the media. And, uh, I, you know, in our home, the, one of the best things in the world that ever happened, when my parents became Seventh-day Adventists, um, I was six years old. I never attended public school. In fact, I never attended public school even though we moved to a neighborhood where the, I could have walked inside the neighborhood just two blocks and been at the school. Uh, that's why my parents moved there. But they didn't know that God was going to call them to become Seventh-day Adventists. And so they had two little boys. I was six. My brother was three. And um, at any rate, uh, not long before we became Adventists, television had been invented and was now being marketed uh, widely everywhere. And we had one of the first televisions on the block. And um, all the kids would come over to our house to watch the television. And I can, I'll date myself really good um, if I can. But I can tell you, still tell you the programs that we used to watch. Um, I mean, they made huge impressions. And they're not, they weren't nearly as sophisticated as they are today. They're, they're very, very, very powerful programs today. But I can still tell you, you know, what I watched. That uh, obviously the technology was just brand new. And after we became Seventh-day Adventists, the television broke. <laughs> now, here's, here is, a, my dad's sleeping, waiting for the Lord to come, but here is a powerful credit to my dad and mother. Dad said, I'm not getting that thing fixed. I've been watching that, and I don't think that fits what we've been reading in the Bible and in the Spirit of Prophecy. I just don't think I want you boys raised on that. Now, let me tell you, on his side of the family, they're pretty, they're pretty fine folk and, and talented people, and on my mother's side as well. But they, they never responded to the Adventist message. My mother's side did respond to it. But they thought my dad was nuts. They said, listen, you're, you're going to mess those boys up. I mean, those boys should have television. And, when, and, and it was so intense I mean, they were nice, don't get me wrong, but when my grandmother passed away, my grandmother passed away, they said, look, to my father, look, you take grandma's television, I'm, we'll give you grandma's television for the boys. And my dad says, no, I don't, it's not coming into our home. And I had the blessing of being raised, I was raised not in the country, I was raised in the city, but I was, had the blessing of being raised without a television, and my brother and I and the neighborhood boys spent lots and lots of hours playing outside, doing all kinds of things that we would never have done had we been set glued to that, and that's right where I would have been. I mean, I have a, I have a good imagination, and so all that stuff appeals to that kind of personality, and I'd have been there just soaking it all up and so forth. So, you know, when our kids came along, we didn't raise them with a television either. Now, if you come into my house, you'll see a television in the front room, but it doesn't work except to put an exercise program on. So, and that doesn't make me better than anybody else. It doesn't make me better, but it's, it's something that's been a blessing to me, and, I, and I'm grateful for it to this day. Um, so we have to ask ourselves about the media. We have to ask ourselves how we're controlling the media and we don't want to be a stumbling block. I would say to elders, I would say to deacons and deaconesses, I would say to youth leaders, don't bring your kids, young people, into your house, rent a movie, and just pop it in. 
try to get something healthier than that. Maybe there's a good one, you know, maybe there's a really good one occasion. I'm not here to be judgmental and that kind of thing. But can't we do better than that? Can't we get these kids connecting to each other? All they're doing now is they're connecting with these, you know, phones that we have, we all have. And, and uh, you know, they sit right next to each other and text back and forth rather than talk. I mean, that's the world we live in nowadays. Um, but can't we get these kids interacting with one another? Can't we get them interacting with us? Can't we help develop fellowship? Fellowship's a big deal in the early church. Um, so, and, and for, I, I'll give you another example. I was, I was pastoring, and we were part of a constituent school. I won't tell you where, but they had, had a social, and they rented a movie. And, and in the movie, the little kids were all, now I'm a grown pastor at this point. The kids are all sitting down here on the front row, of course, just taking this big screen movie and the gymnasium of the school and they're just soaking it up and and it was some story about water rights in the west it was a basically a cowboy story i guess anyway you know how they build the drama and all that and finally the good guy shoots the bad guy and they cheered And I had lay people coming to me afterwards saying, we saw it too. What are we doing? I said, yeah, we need to think about what we are doing. Sometimes bad people have to die. But it shouldn't ever be with cheers. More with tears. We live in an evil and a mean world. Understand that. Anyway, yeah, please. Okay, get you right here. Paragraph there. This is from the church manual, just to kind of put it all in perspective, since we have some focus on the church manual. Uh, This is page 143 of the current church manual. We must avoid anything that dramatizes, graphically presents, or suggests the sins and crimes of humanity, murder, adultery, robbery, and similar evils, which to a large degree... are responsible for the breakdown of morality. Instead, we should find delight in God's great world of nature and the romance of human agencies and divine workings. Thank you so much. What page was that? Uh, 143 Church Manual. I tell you that Church Manual's got a lot of good stuff in it. A lot of good stuff in it. What's that? Yeah, we need to follow it, and we need a revival of the church manual in our churches, among our people, and uh, as I mentioned earlier when we started this class, I think one of our big problems in the Western world is we drifted from our own church manual, our own teachings. All right, uh, back to Matthew 18, and we'll uh, continue on here. Let's go down to uh, verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise these little ones. I talked yesterday about pecking order. And, and this, is a, this is really Jesus saying, not, did you hear uh, Wes Pepper's sermon this morning? It was a really powerful sermon again. And um, we just had at our, at our minister's meeting back in August, I did a presentation and I also did it a year earlier for our teachers on competition. 
Um, our world today is a very competitive world. I don't have time to get into that whole subject. But I will tell you that heaven is not going to be filled with competition. It's going to be filled with cooperation. And uh, our whole world today is, is not a Christian culture. I mean, what we do today for entertainment is we pay people millions of dollars to beat the daylights out of each other or, you know, be uno number one oh. That's how we entertain ourselves. I mean, you, can, you, walk, you, walk, uh, uh, you walk by the um, televisions that are out in the thing there and you'll see all the games that are going on. That's how we... We go, and so our kids today think that that's, that's what it's supposed to be. We're, we're really suffering in the Western world because this has taken our mindset over. We're suffering in the Western world in our churches because we do not even grasp the fundamental principles of Christianity. It is a fundamental principle of Christianity to cooperate, not to compete. Competition started in heaven with Lucifer's rebellion. It's never something God wanted. We're in a great controversy because Lucifer imposed this on it. And it's all, you know, stomp somebody down so that I can be uno number one Don't get me going on this. I have a whole hour on this thing. I, maybe if we run out of time today by the last session, I'll get you going. I've got some fantastic stuff you would not believe. The secular world today and the research on this will tell you that cooperation produces far greater results, far greater character growth than competition. I say to ourselves, so what are we doing when our schools violate general conference um, policy and develop varsity sports so that we can go and beat the daylights out of the other Christian Catholic school or Baptist school or other Adventist school. And, I mean, this pressure is everywhere. It's everywhere. I, I say to people, listen, tell me, you, you want us to do this kind of thing? You, you want the kids at, at Academy A to hate the kids at Academy B? I mean, that's natural enough. You know, I can remember when I was going, we had two academies in the western part of the state where I was growing up, and it was very, very natural to say, okay, I'm from this, oh, you're from that, all right, let's just see who's the best. That's just human, carnal nature. Yes. It is a fruit of the flesh, absolutely. Anyway, uh, don't get me going on that. Hey, and, and the reason is, that's not being conservative. To be progressive for Adventists, by the way, these terms have been flipped today. When Ellen White talked about being conservative, she was talking about being conservative and going back to worldly policies. And the progressives were moving toward heaven with reformation, reformation of life, reforms, health reforms, dress reforms, all those things, because they were moving progressively towards heaven. We flip those things today. And uh, we want to build character in our kids. That's why we have our schools. We want to have our schools so our schools become like the worldly schools. And we ape them, then we're going to get the same results. We want to see our little kids and our young people and our teenagers. We want school A to love the kids from school B. And we want the schools, kids from school B to love those Catholic kids. Am I right? 
I want to love those Baptist kids over there in that. I don't want them to hate those kids. Okay. You really want me to get into this. I will. Okay. Let's get back to 18. I won't get through this part. Who's watching my time? You watching my time? Okay, bless you. Okay, I got six minutes. Okay. See, when you have a weakness, you surround yourself with people who have the strength. <laughs> All right. Um, verse, verse 11 is, st- we're starting at the heart of the chapter now. And that's why I say that church discipline is redemptive. Listen, here's the heart of it. Verse 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. It does not say the Son of Man came to condemn or to judge. Now, there's a judgment coming. We know it has to happen. But his primary main mission and our primary main mission is to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, this is a heart of it. You know the parable as well as I do. Verse 12, it's followed by a parable. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountain and seek the one that is straying? Now, I want to stop here because I want to talk about preventative for the next few minutes, and I probably won't get everything done in the next few minutes. But many times in our churches, we do not take a proactive position of trying to make sure that we don't lose members. Now, some of you may be in private business, but I'll guarantee you, I know at the conference office, and that's not a business in the traditional sense of the word, but every time we have conference executive committee, we expect a financial statement. We count money. We account for that money. When we give... uh, Elder Snayman, a budget for evangelism of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, which he prays God that we can do, he has to walk in the conference executive committee and presents them with a list of every place they're going to spend that money. We count money. Business people count money. Am I right? You own a business, you're going to count your money. So how come we aren't counting sheep on Sabbath morning? How is it that people can come into our congregations, members of our congregations, and leave and not see them for weeks and nobody really notices? How can can it happen that we can have 10, 20, 30% of the people on our books and we don't even really know where they're at? I'll tell you what's going on here. What we have going on is somebody's not looking after the store. And I, forgive me, I'm going to talk here for just a minute or two and I'll come back. We, we need to take a very, very proactive, and it starts with elders. And it starts with the elders meeting on a monthly basis. The elders are the spiritual um, overseers of those churches, and they should not be burdened. They should not be burdened with the roof. They should not be burdened with the... Uh, Mowing the lawn, they should not be burdened with those kinds of things. They should be burdened with one thing, and that is watching after the saints and evangelism and leading those churches. And I'll get into that in a little later. But So they need to be organized. I always say that love needs a delivery truck. If you, don't, if you have love but you can't deliver it, then it's not going to do you any good. Love needs a delivery truck. So how's the delivery truck? It's organization. 
Your elders should be meeting on a monthly basis, and they should be going over the list. This is prevention. They should be going over the list of the members. In one of my churches, I got uh, a whiteboard that had a metal back to it, and I got the uh, magnetic uh, tape, and we, took, we had cards up there for every family in our church. So we could, when we had an elders meeting, we could take a one look at that board and we could see every, every family in our church. We had a different color of card for people who were way out of town that we couldn't uh, communicate to on a personal uh, level, maybe telephone call. We had another tag on there that showed us that somebody wasn't coming to church. We had another tag on there that immediately let us see when those families had been visited, or if those families had been visited in that one year. And the elders, I said to them, look, I know we got a greeting committee. That's great. Let them do their work. But I want you in that foyer. I want you in that foyer a half hour before church starts, i.e. Sabbath school. And Scott used to pastor in Michigan before we had to give you up and share you with somebody else. But I think he would verify that he's heard me say this, probably. I've said to pastors... If you're the pastor of the church and you're running that church, you should be there a half hour ahead of time. And if you're not there a half hour ahead of time, you're late. Somebody should have said amen. amen. Yeah. I, I, so I'm confused. Yeah. Uh, I have no problem being a half hour before Sabbath school. That's not a problem. But if I'm teaching at Sabbath school, I can't be half hour early in the lobby. Yeah, yeah, you have to make adjustments for that. But usually I have more than one elder. If you're the only elder, it might be a problem. But what I want to have happen is this. I want, as people are coming to that church, I want them connected with. Every elder has his own group that he's working with. That doesn't mean he can't work with somebody else. But he's got his own group that he's responsible for, so he knows where is happening in those people's lives. So on Sabbath morning, they're coming into the church. How am I doing in my six minutes? I'm done. You want to stay by, I'm going to give you a break, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you what I wanted to do on Sabbath morning. I'm going to give you three communication skills that you don't want to miss. Okay, five-minute break, and then we'll come back. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.